Well, good morning again, and welcome to week two on our series, or for our series on politics. Last week, we began talking about how politics matter and how we are to engage politically as ambassadors for Christ, and we've been wrestling with what does that mean. Well, a few days after the message, someone forwarded me a story from a major news outlet, and the story was about how thousands of these signs have been popping up all over the country, and the signs say, Jesus 2020. One of the organizers of this movement, they said, hey, with all that's going on, people need Jesus. He keeps his promises. Well, if you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. Pledging allegiance to political parties can be problematic. As ambassadors for a very, very, very different kingdom, we often find ourselves, um, at least our beliefs and our values, at odds with political candidates and political parties. Which brings us into a question that we're going to wrestle with today. And that question is this, how do we disagree in a God-honoring way? It's really easy to disagree, and as ambassadors for Christ, we're going to disagree with others. But how do we do that in a God-honoring way? That's what we're going to wrestle with today. Now, there is a lot that could be said about this. I already warned to, uh, Sam, we usually have a 25-minute countdown. I don't think we're going to hit 25 today, but I'm going to do the best I can to be as concise as I can and offer a few biblically anchored thoughts here on how ambassadors for Christ can disagree politically in a God-honoring way. And I believe as we get started here, it is best to work from the inside out. So here's the approach we're going to take today. We're going to begin with three things that I believe we should do before we even open our mouths. And then we're going to look at four things, four things that we should practice as we respond. So here we go. Let's start with three things we should do before we even open our mouths. Number one, if you're going to use a proof text, check the context. Let me say that again. If you're going to use a proof text, check the context. Here's what we mean by that. When you use a proof text, what you do is you start with an idea and then you go to the Bible and you look for something that looks like it proves that. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. You should start with the scripture and see what it says, right? Well, this is nothing new. Last week, we discussed a group, a group that was there at the time of Jesus. They were called the Pharisees. They loved to quote scripture but they often missed the point. So let me give you an example of what this looks like today, of how you could take a passage and use it as a proof text and have it say something that it really doesn't say. This is from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 2. If you were a politician, you were in power, you would love to use this as your proof text. Here we go. Romans chapter 13, 1 through 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So let's say you're in power. You'd love to have this as a proof text, wouldn't you? Because basically it sounds like what it says is, hey, God put us here, do what we say. Well, what happens if we keep reading? Shouldn't have closed my Bible there too fast. Going back to Romans 13, uh, 3 through 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have to fear the one in, who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. All right. You might read these verses 
if you're paying attention there and, and, and find yourself asking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Does God not get news streamed into heaven? Because this says here that God put good leaders in place and they're going to do the right thing and they're going to reward the good folks and they're going to punish the wrongdoers. And we can all think of examples. We can all think of examples where people in power did not affirm those who did good and they overlooked wrongdoing. So there's clearly more going on in this passage than a proof text that says, God always puts good leaders in place. They'll always do the right thing. So always do what they tell you to do. Let's go back just a little bit to Romans 12, 2. And you begin to see there's more to the context here. Romans 12, uh, 2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So just turning a little bit before that passage, you begin to see there's more here. Before we ever get to the part of obeying those in authority, we come across these instructions to not conform when God's will and culture begin to diverge. Romans was written by a follower of Jesus named Paul. And we find this same type of nuance elsewhere in the Bible. We find it in the example and writings of a disciple named Peter. Here's something that Peter wrote in a letter that we call 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13-14. Be subject for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. All right, again, did the rulers in Peter's day always punish what was bad and reward those who do good? No, they nailed Jesus to a cross. So there's got to be more to this. And sure enough, all you need to do is keep reading. Verse 15, you find this. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you shall put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You know, there you go. This, this is brilliant. This is brilliant, what the Holy Spirit does um, through uh, Paul and Peter, both. Both Peter and Paul paint a picture of what God-honoring leadership looks like. They say it looks like this. And then they say this is what a God-honoring citizen looks like when they're behaving in God-honoring ways. What citizen doesn't want a leader who is looking out for their best interest? What leader doesn't want a citizen who is responding with respect? If you get this stuff working together, everyone says, almost everyone says, that's what you want. That's what we want. So in most situations, unless we have a compelling reason, we should respect the laws of our land and those in authority because that's going to work out best for everybody. And that brings us to number two on our list. Remember that disagree and disobey are two different words. This is so important. Disagree and disobey are two different words. Imagine the chaos if every time you disagreed with a law, you went ahead and just disobeyed it, that would not work well. In our culture, people have been jumping really, really fast from disagree to disobey. It seems like that's happening faster and faster every year. And I'll be candid with you. I've seen a lot of churches following the pattern of the culture rather than the scripture when it comes to this. And just because they disagree, they've been very quick to disobey, especially when it comes to COVID-related um, regulations. All right, let's turn to Acts chapter 4. And what we want to do as a church, we want to, we want to be very, very careful to really be following the example and 
teachings here of, of Jesus and his followers. And so let's take a look here. Acts chapter 4, we're going to look at the example that Peter set. The same Peter that just wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the words we looked at earlier. Okay, here's the situation before we start reading it. Jesus had just died and appeared to his disciples. And then before he went away, he promised to send a helper, the Holy Spirit. And as promised, the Holy Spirit fell on the believers and they began to represent Jesus in their community. Well, in the midst of all this, there was a miraculous healing, and then those in authority started to feel threatened. So they arrested Peter, and they arrested another disciple named John. Now, the book of Acts was written by a physician named Luke, and Luke has proven to be an excellent historian. Luke purposely includes a few names that people in his day would have recognized. In Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, we see this. On the next day, their rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas. And those two authorities in positions of authority, now over um, Peter, were also in positions of authority in the trial of Jesus. And we find this if you look at Luke or at John chapter 18, verse 24, same names. Annas sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas. Why does that matter? As we begin to read this text, it matters because Peter and John knew what Annas and Caiaphas were capable of. They were right at the center of getting Jesus sent to the cross. All right. Well, here's what here's the verdict that the authorities rendered in this case. Here's the verdict that they rendered. Uh, this is what they said uh, was the sentence here for, for Peter and for John. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 18 says, So they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's what they told them. Those in authorities were not just saying, hey, mask up buttercup. They were saying, thou shalt not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So now Peter has a chance to model the very things that he taught about later. He had a chance to model what submitting to authority looks like in a God-honoring way. What does he do? Here it is. Here's his example in uh, uh, verses 19 through 20. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must be the judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. Right, let's talk about this a little bit. Do you notice that Peter and John say, with measured words, they say, do what you need to do. But here's what we need to do. We, we've got to share the good news of Jesus. Civil disobedience with personal sacrifice, because remember, those two who were standing trial over them, they were the ones that sent Jesus to the cross, or at least they were at the center of that. I mean, civil disobedience with willingness to have personal sacrifice, boy, that is right in line with the example of Jesus. All right, there's more here too, and, and I really want to get at this. So if you've kind of been drifting a little bit, come back. This is really, really important. Let's take a closer look at their example. Uh, these are verses 13 through 14. Now, when those in authority saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Look at this. Seeing the man who was healed beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. 
God had just been working in a powerful way through Peter and through John, so much so that this guy got healed. And the guy's right there. So it's like, what do you say? Now, if you want to get a clearer picture of what God-honoring citizen of heaven ambassadoring looks like, read the book of Acts. Because this is a group, this Jesus movement, this is a group that was not known by what they were against. This was a group that was known by what they were for. Can I get an amen to that? Absolutely. All right. I want to encourage you to read all of Acts 4. Read it. Read all of Acts 4. In fact, read all of Acts. Now, they let Peter and John go. They let them go. Why? They let them go because there were thousands of people who were filled with wonder and amazement because Peter and John were bringing healing and hope to their community. That brings us to number three. Remember that crusaders are better at enraging enemies than they are at convincing people to convert. You ever heard of crusaders? You guys ever heard of crusaders? A little bit? Crusaders, they were these religious people. They set out to take back the Holy Land by waging war the way the world wages war. Don't be a crusader. I couldn't agree more with this quote from Eugene Cho. He says this, the most powerful sermon we can preach is the one we embody. You are the Jesus 2020 sign. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. You guys are. You are. You're the t- Jesus 2020 sign. We are. That's what we are. We're supposed to be that. Why were the authorities afraid to p- punish Peter and John? Because everybody could see the impact that they were having on the world around them. Everybody could see that. Man, if we ever get to the point where church people are the only people that care if we're open, then maybe we should rethink why we're open and why we don't just close. Can I get an amen to that too? Amen. Yeah. All this to say, when you see something or when you hear something and you want to say something, these are examples of things we should do first. Before you even open your mouth, if you're going to use a Bible verse, if you're going to proof text, make sure that you know the context. And also, don't be too quick. If you disagree, don't be too quick to jump right to disobedience because maybe the example you're supposed to set is to submit and be ready to take the consequences. And then number three, definitely don't be a crusader. And that's what these next things get at. We've talked about some of the internal things to do before you respond. Now let's talk very, very quickly. Here are four things to consider as you respond. Here's how you don't be a crusader. Here's how you can respond in a more God-honoring way, a way that is more likely to open up real conversation rather than shut it down. Here we go. Number one, don't try to have a 3D conversation in a 2D medium. What I mean by that, that is just shorthand. It's shorthand for don't use texts, don't use emails, don't use Twitter, don't use Facebook, don't use written typed words to have a conversation. Use the typing to schedule a time when you can talk. Number two, as you engage, avoid harsh startups. Did you know that you can learn how to predict the outcome of a conversation with 96% accuracy in the first three minutes if you watch how the conversation goes? First three minutes. One of the things that is almost guaranteed to make the conversation go bad is called a harsh startup. It's either starting with a harsh harsh tone, boom, triggering fight or flight, or you can start with a measured tone. And if it if people pick up on criticism, they pick up on sarcasm, they pick up on content, contempt, 
it just it shuts it down. It usually makes things worse instead of better. So if you have something hard to say, instead of coming in with this hard startup, do this next thing. Number three, seek to understand before trying to be understood. This is counterintuitive, but the best listener, being the best listener, I should say, being the best listener in the conversation is your best chance at being heard. All right, and once you have a solid understanding, once you've done this, you've sought to understand before trying to be understood, you have a better idea where the person's coming from, then here comes number four, find common ground and build bridges from there. The Apostle Paul was second only to Jesus himself when it comes to being the most effective evangelist of all time. And there's a great succinct example of his approach in Acts chapter 17. When Paul was in Athens, he quoted their poets. He referenced inscriptions to their idols. He found connection points with people that believed radically different things than he did. And guess what? It worked. He won some of them over. They gave him a chance to share his ideas. But did he win everybody over? Did Paul win everybody over? No, he didn't. And he was Paul. Did Jesus win everybody over? Did Jesus convince everybody that he was the way, truth, and life? No, No, he didn't. And he was Jesus. So give yourself some grace. If you do everything right and it still goes wrong and people don't listen, give yourself some grace if a conversation doesn't go well. I came across this quote as I was prepping for this week. It says this, I cherish the remark attributed to a bishop who complained that he didn't seem to be having the same impact as the first apostles. He said this, quote, Everywhere St. Paul went, there was a riot. Everywhere I go, they serve tea. If you don't have any haters, that can be a red flag too. What did Jesus say? Jesus said this. Don't be surprised if people hate you. They hated me first. If you conform to the world, the world would love you as its own. But I chose you out of the world and there will be those who hate you for it. Even if you say and do everything right, in fact, if you say and do everything the way Jesus did, you're going to have haters. But, 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 blessed are those who are truly walking with Christ, especially through seasons like this. When we do, we can have confidence even when everything around us looks like it's fallen apart. Let me show you something. Let's turn to the epilogue of Acts chapter 4. Here we go. We're getting towards the end. When they were released, when Paul and or Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Now, a number of my sources, not just one, a number of them pointed something out right there. They pointed out to the phrase, lifted their voices together. This was not probably a unison thing because they didn't all know what the other person was going to be saying. But you find similar language like this all over the Bible. It says they lifted their voice together or they said with one voice. This is one of the reasons, this is one of the reasons why we teach you prayers like the Lord's Prayer that we can say together. This is one of the reasons why we, we say the same prayers coming into going to the Lord's table. This is, this is why I do things like say, can I get an amen? Because you can go to the scripture, Deuteronomy 27, Moses does it 12 times or something like that in that chapter. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? When times are tough, <laughs> there is, when there's so much division all around us, 
There is power in joining our voices. Can I get an amen? Amen. There we go. All right, let's go back to our text. Verses, uh, the next couple of verses here. They lifted their voices together. And then they said this. They said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. All right, a lot of the scholars hit pause here too. And they said, this is really interesting. In English, you might miss this, but in Greek, they use a word that isn't a word that you always use for God. It's rarely used for God. There's a word that you regularly use for God. They didn't use the word you regularly use for God. They use this other word that usually is used to describe someone who is in absolute power over their subjects. You would use it for a slave over their, or a master over their slave, and it was really used a lot with Caesar over the people. It's a word that's translated here as sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. What were God's people doing? They were lifting their voice as one, and they were as one saying, God, we pledge our allegiance first and foremost to you. You are the sovereign Lord. You are God over the heavens. You are God over the earth. In fact, there's some really interesting language that we should come back to sometime. This word predestination. God, you are Lord over history. Lord over history. Let's continue on. Look at this. They then start quoting scripture. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Oh, did I need that reminder this week? This whole reminder that God, he's in control. Those who are just seem to be raging against him, you know, God will work things out. I'll need to remember that on November 4th too, I think. Regardless of the outcome of this or any election, God is still on the throne. Here's how their prayer concludes. They say this, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your servant, Jesus Christ. And then they had, and they, when they had prayed, the place that they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Next week, we're going to pick up with the importance of prayer. I shouldn't say pick up with, we're going to continue talking about that, the importance of prayer. But let me bring today's teaching to a close with this. On Tuesday, on Tuesday, this was really interesting. On Tuesday, I had two meetings that were about two hours apart. The first meeting I had was with a extremely successful lawyer from an extremely uh, successful law firm. The very next meeting I had was a phone call with a person who's working with kids in Juarez, Mexico, in a children's home. Each one of them had huge challenges before them. And independently, without me saying anything about what I was going to be talking about this week, independently, each of them said, I don't know how people do it without Jesus. I don't know how people do it without Jesus. You know, this morning, I hope that you got a couple of helpful thoughts that were anchored in Scripture about how we can engage and disagree in a God-honoring way. I hope you got some of that, but here's what I hope more than anything else. I hope that you got pointed to Jesus. There is a confidence, there is a confidence that we can have when we know the Sovereign Lord that can help us navigate through anything. With all that's going on, people need Jesus. He's promised to never leave or forsake us.
and he keeps his promises. We invite you to take this song now that Christy's going to lead us in and make it your prayer.